This is a Yellow Wave production. Nature versus nurture. It's the classical 101 of psychology, 101 of philosophy. We all know this. We've all we've all discussed this debate that's been around since we've been around as humans. Some believe that people are born evil. Some believe that people grow into evil pretty much due to whatever shit is going on in their lives, especially their early developmental years. Others believe it's a combo of the two. I believe that it's all of those things and none of those things because I see a person basically like their fingerprint, completely unique, never having existed before and never going to exist in the same way again. Whatever you believe, keep that beautiful mind wide open, especially for the story, for lack of a better word, that I'm about to tell you. It's one of Florida's most chilling stories, the story of Gerald Eugene Stano. Stano's story, hello alliteration, I love alliteration, so that was great, begins in the early 70s in the coastal regions of Florida, so basically everywhere because, I mean, I'm kidding, but also lots of coastal areas in Florida, as we know. He was pudgy, short, and not what one would categorize as a looker. In his mind, though, he absolutely believed the opposite to be true, and was even known to refer to himself as, and this is in quotes because this is how he referred to himself, a real Italian stallion. Okay, I'm all about self-confidence, but knowing what comes next as far as his story, take it easy. Um, it's kind, it kind of makes me think of little man syndrome, except in a, a different, with a twist. I don't know. That's something to think about. However, like I'm getting off track. I'm not here to debate which of these is true. He probably was plain to some people and others maybe thought he was a stallion. Who knows? Physical appearance aside, there's one fact about Stano that is not debatable. He was a cold-blooded psychopath. At the time of his arrest in March of 1981, he confessed to 33 gruesome murders. Present day, that number has grown to a whopping 41. 22 bodies were found, identified, and have been accredited to Stano. The rest... I mean, I'm doing a shoulder shrug because... The rest is uh, is left to find and put together. It's there somewhere. The, the evidence exists. 
It just hasn't been found yet. I'm going to tell you about three of his victims in a second. And I ask that you listen carefully and remember that these young women are not characters in a true crime novel or a movie or a TV show or for this podcast or any others. They are real. I say are because energy always exists. So this is just like a little bit of an insider info fun fact. You're going to notice when I use my um, present tense, past tense, it's going to change, but I'm not, I'm not losing it. I'm not scatterbrained at, well, I mean, I kind of am, but not in this sense. When I say they are real, I mean that because they still exist in some capacity. Their form has changed. Laugh if you want, or for my type out there, it's science and you're hearing that. So take a drink because I just said science. And uh, yeah, you're out there and you're hearing that and you understand what I'm trying to say. And maybe I will explain that more later on. But right now, it's not about that. It's about these people, these stories of each individual, the whole tapestry that is Stano's story. They were living, breathing people just like you and me. They laughed. They cried. Some of them had kids of their own. Some were still kids themselves. Most importantly, they had a right to life, and they matter. Mary Carol Mayer was an attractive 22-year-old with a habit of hitchhiking. One day in 1980, after spending some time at a bar, she walked outside looking for a ride. It was not long before a man noticed her and pulled over. Mary Carol got in. They drove only a short distance before she realized she was in trouble because at a red light, the man put his hand on her leg and said, I want some right here. At which point she started laughing, probably nervously or mockingly, who knows, but she did not laugh for long. Her hysterics quickly turned into pure terror when he exposed the blade of a knife. She lunged for the door, but his grip was way too strong. Gerald began screaming repeatedly, plunging the knife into her chest. Her body hung forward, limp, except for her right arm, which still attempted to open the door. Stano abruptly pulled her back and continued to stab her until she no longer moved. Then, he quickly searched for a place to dispose of her body before his upholstery was too blood-stained to clean. Her body was found decomposed two weeks later. Tony Van Haddix had lived a rough life. She was a sex worker, coerced into the job, in quotes, because it's only a job if you choose it, which is perfectly fine. You do you. But anyway, not, I am not getting into that right now. She was pretty much forced into this life by a man she had once stayed with. All she wanted was someone to love her. Don't we all? I feel that, Tony. She would never get the chance. One night, Tony was on the street working when a car pulled up and a man offered her $30. She accepted readily, just another day on the job. He led her into his vehicle and off they went. She only began to worry when he kept driving. She she personally was used to sticking close to her neighborhood and the usual area and then continuing to work throughout the night. She was not used to jobs that took her away from the neighborhood or were for longer periods of time, like a dinner or a date, something like that. It was usually like 
wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, for lack of a better term. I mean that in all honesty and just for the sense of like, that's what she was used to, like, do, 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 efficiency, wasting no time. That is not a condescending term. And that, or I should say, that's not my intention. Uh, Eventually, Stano turned down a dirt road, which that right there, terrifying. Take a drink. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I, I cannot, as soon as I read that, I was just... Ooh, starting to get real heated up like that is not okay. Her, <clears throat> excuse me, her right arm was in a cast and he began hitting it and laughing at her pain. Finally, when he stopped hitting her cast, he decided that he was going to force her to go down on him. When she had finished, she reluctantly asked for her fee. Brave goddamn girl for all of this because I would, oh my God, I would have been like, I, you are unstable. I don't know what to do right now. However, you you owe me 30 bucks, bro. I mean, it is what it is. Get it. Sister, get it. Um, let's see. I got really excited just then and lost my spot. Standard. Okay. So then... Pretty much as she's still saying that, like asking for her fee, he reaches under the seat for his knife and stabs her twice in the car. Then he drags her convulsing body from the car and continues to plunge his weapon into her head 38 times. I simultaneously feel a migraine coming on and I want to vomit. Oh my God, my full body chills are painful at this point. That is in her head 38 times getting stabbed i cannot i can't oh my god i can't okay he he pulled her corpse further away from his vehicle and tossed some tree branches over it obviously he wasn't concerned about her being found he didn't care he didn't want it to be right away but he wasn't trying to hide anything for a long-term period of time which is equally terrifying drink again then he goes home cleans the gore off his car seat cleans his knife locks everything in his trunk and goes to bed as if it were another day at the office which in fairness for serial killers that's exactly what it was just another day at his office which was the world and stalking and killing just saying it's it is what it is but as for serial killers, yeah, he it was just another day at the office. Crazy. Donna Hensley saves the day that she should never have had to save. And that shit came with a hefty price of 30 plus stab wounds. Had it not been for this fierce woman who somehow survived these 30 plus stab wounds, it is very possible that Gerald Eugene Stano might still be out and at it to this day. I'd love to think that that is unlikely, but unfortunately, that's just not true. If you're into true crime enough and you get in, if you're just getting into it, you're going to find out real quick. It is all over the board as far as solve rates and just, just all of the variables are everywhere all the time. It's wild. It's a wild ride. It is. It was at this point that Stano was identified as the perpetrator 
and soon after, captured. Cue applause. (laughs) I wish. Maybe someday. Maybe someday I'll get that brazen and just like go for it and insert some applause because this is a perfect moment. He then began to tell his monstrous tales and to be a fly on the wall for that, I can't help but think it probably would have been too much for me to be honest, but God damn fascinating. So fascinating, especially from a psychological point of view. Just, I just, who that would be insane. He was tried, convicted and sent to death row at Florida State Prison, where he spent the rest of his life until he was executed in 1998. And this is where I get into how I even heard about this man, because somehow he has flown under the radar in all of the circles I run in as far as true crime. And I couldn't believe it when I read this. But I will get into that next after a little quick little break for some sponsorships. And basically just to clear my head like a palate cleanser because this is just a wild one. Buckle up. We're going to keep on going. It's not over. Get ready. Did you know that there are over 250 species of squirrels? existing right now across the five continents? Yeah, me either, and I love squirrels. In fairness, I love all animals. Today though, January 21st is all about the squirrels because today is Squirrel Appreciation Day. Squirrels are very helpful in the process of tree renewal, especially those forgetful types. That would be me if I were a squirrel. When a squirrel buries a nut in the ground and forgets about it, They're assisting with fruit and tree renewal, which is important because oxygen. Also, fun fact, squirrels don't just eat nuts and seeds. They also eat mushroom spores, and it's pretty important that they keep doing so because when they excrete the spores, poop for you dazed and confused listeners, that immediately helps matter decompose and gives plants the boost of nutrition they need to grow. Squirrels help maintain the relationship between plants and mushrooms, which then helps spread the growth of plants all over the world. Even if none of what I just told you was true, they're so damn cute. If you're not already, follow this underscore girl underscore is underscore a underscore squirrel on Instagram and thank me later. These adorable little babes are so important slow down and let them cross the street. We need them and they need us. Don't be an asshole. Use the hashtag Squirrel Appreciation Day and share the love. As for how I decided to do this week on Stano and how I even heard about him in the first place was a couple weeks ago when I was reading Anne Rule's book, Stranger Beside Me, uh, which is about Ted Bundy. It's about so much more than that. But let's see, I wanted to read part of it. So actually, no, I won't read it. But I'll tell you that I learned that he was friendly with his neighbors. One side of, of one side of him at his cell, which we're talking about Ted right now, was Gerald Eugene Stano. The other side was Otis Elwood Toole. So then she actually mentions 
with Stano that it was rumored that many of his victims wore blue, which is a color that was favored by his brother, and he hated his brother. So that's kind of interesting, too, almost like a subconscious thing, whether or maybe conscious. But either way, um, they were all on death row at Florida prison. Uh, I believe it was called Rayford. And yeah, there's a couple of articles where they talk about like the headlines are two prisoners seek, um, what is the word? A stay. No, two prisoners receive a stay of execution. They're talking about Stano and Bundy. Just kind of crazy that this is a crazy, huge world, but really it's super small. We're all connected and it's just, it's wild. But yeah, as soon as I read that, I'm like, gotta look him up. Murderpedia, what up? Went right over there and here you have it. My synopsis on all of it. I'm putting it all together the best I can with the time I have because there's so much information on everyone. But that was what the seed that was planted was when I was reading that book. Yay! Gerald Eugene Stano was born in Schenectady, New York. His given name at birth was Paul Menninger. His biological mother actually had neglected him to such an extent that when she finally gave him up for adoption at six months old, county doctors declared him unadoptable because he was functioning at what they described as an animalistic level, even ingesting his own feces to survive. Okay, cute, cute, not cute, cute, absolute, pure heartbreak, mine. As for being unadoptable, nope, because eventually he is adopted by Norma Stano, a nurse, and she actually decides to rename him Eugene Gerald Stano. By all accounts, the Stanos were loving parents, but discipline problems plagued their adopted son pretty much all his life. He earned C's and D's in all subjects in school, except for music, which he actually excelled at. Sidebar, I cannot help but want to time travel to him and just hug the shit out of him and cultivate that natural music talent and then just keep hugging him. I know, I'm sure his parents did all of those things, but really, truly, you never know. And on top of that, you can't show too much love to anybody, especially somebody like him who clearly needs all the support he can get. Okay, back to it. He lied compulsively and was once caught stealing money from his dad's wallet to pay fellow members of his track team to finish behind him so he wouldn't be seen as a complete failure. He graduated high school at 21. Holy shit. And did not attend college. Okay, that was almost too much. He paid his teammates to let him finish before them. (sighs) I'm here to tell you that your heart can break and break and break and break and somehow there is still enough left to break again always because that's exactly what's happening to me. (laughs) It happens all the time too. And then to graduate at 21, my brain is trying to calculate. Okay, I graduated at 18 because my birthday is in August and I actually started school in Las Vegas and at that time everyone there started differently than they do here in Illinois but To be honest, I didn't mind at all. I actually loved it. But 21? There are some people who graduate from college before they're even 21. I don't even know how that's possible, but it could not have been easy to go through that. Imagine it. 
it's already hard enough without being the 21 year old still in school. I don't, I don't know. I'd like to, I'd like to believe that's not something that would or even could happen today in 2020, but any teachers out there listening, let me know. I appreciate it. In dissecting Stano's past, you got to think about the possibility that his problems might have started at birth. Whether it's by coincidence or happenstance or whatever. However it is explained, I'm not sure, but a large number of serial killers are adoptees. On top of that, most adoptees who kill were adopted at birth, which is crazy. So it's like a nature versus nurture thing yet again. The FBI claims that at least 16% of all known serial killers have already been identified as adoptees. In the book Chosen Children by Lori Carangelo, the author considers the theory of adoption as a potential contribution to the serial killer's motivation a fascinating subject because it creates two questions. The first one is that the biological parents may have left their child with defective genes, and finding out that one was adopted might also undermine the sense of identity in a fragile youth and make the child prone to fantasizing the identity of his true parents, either good or bad. During an interview with a New York Times reporter, Dr. David Kirshner said, I've personally been involved in 12 cases of adoptees who have killed, including a tiny but significant group who become serial killers. And while many undergo therapy, unfortunately, there is barely ever a mention of the impact adoption has on their lives. It's a subject no one ever wants to talk about, particularly adoptive families. I think that I could see that, yeah. Uh, Whether or not his adoption actually affected Stano's later actions That is all speculative. As I've mentioned throughout this whole episode, as he's growing up, Gerald developed many problems. Terry Ecker, author of Murder One, describes Stano as emotionally distant, who frequently wet the bed until he was about 10. It's interesting to note that Stano's early childhood behaviors are common in most serial killers. According to Robert Ressler, an FBI profile profile? Nope, he's the profiler. He's probably got a profile. An FBI profiler and author of several books, including Whoever Fights Monsters, potential killers become solidified in their loneliness from the age of 8 to 12. A direct quote from Ressler, such isolation is considered the single most important aspect of their psychological makeup. Loneliness and isolation do not always mean that the potential killers are introverted and shy. Some are, but others are gregarious with other men and are good talkers. The outward orientation of the latter masks their inner isolation. Think Ted Bundy. Very outgoing, very talkative, very go, 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 out in the world, just doing thing after thing after thing. He's the one that's masking like his outward is masking the others, which that totally makes sense. Ressler also notes that of all the serial killers he has ever studied, at least 60% of them had problems wetting the bed. Um, one could argue, hey, Britt here, I'm, I'm the one that's about to argue, that duh, of course 60% had issues with wetting the bed, especially considering the fact that bedwetting is a common effect with more psychological shit than I even have the time to list here. It's basically a rite of passage 
for any kid experiencing change or anxiety, depression, OCD, fear, the list is honest goodness endless. Any sort of issues coming up repeat, like repetitively can create this issue of bedwetting for any kid. It's seriously, it's like a rite of passage for most kids. So that 60%, duh, that's not shocking at all. Just my opinion. (laughs) As I hear myself getting more and more passionate about bedwetting, which just fun fact, you never know what you're going to get passionate about when you're recording a podcast. Because if somebody had said you're going to end up talking about bedwetting and you're going to really get into it, I would have, I wouldn't, I mean, who knows? I'm well aware of crazy stuff that can happen when you're in the moment but I'm realizing that it probably sounds like I'm being defensive because it's like well she was a bedwetter that's why she's so upset yeah actually I was but that's not why I was so passionate I'm passionate about that because I the thing about statistics to me is I look at them and I use them as like a guideline but not black and white and I just, it kind of bothers me when people use it as like 60% of serial killers wet the bed. Look at the bigger picture. No shit. Of course they did because of everything I just said. I don't like when people use information to make it seem like more than what it is. Yeah, that's true. But that is a little nugget within a bigger nugget, nugget. And I feel like as a professional, you have the responsibility to put that into context, which was not done here. And that bothers me. So that's why. But yes, I did wet the bed and I'm, I have no qualms about it. I, I wouldn't, I could lie to you and say that I didn't. Why? It doesn't bother me. A lot of kids do. Like I said, for a lot of reasons, some of them, it's not even about that. It's because they're such heavy sleepers that they don't even know that they have to go to the bathroom. For me, we were moving around a lot. I was anxious all the time. I had OCD. I mean, I have it, but it wasn't known at the time. So there was nothing being done about it, which is fine. It's, Honest to God, though, I remember sleeping so hard, I would have dreams that I had to go to the bathroom, and I dreamt that I got up and went to the toilet and went to the bathroom. More than not, that's why I was wetting the bed. That aside, there's so many reasons, and it doesn't, I just don't like how they did not even share the bigger picture with that. So I took it upon myself to do so for them. You're welcome. The author of Blind Fury, Anna Flowers, wrote that during his adolescence, Gerald had difficulty relating to the kids his own age and tended to hang out by himself. He was an easy target for bullies, and teenage girls usually made him the butt of their jokes. During the late 1960s, Gerald was arrested for pulling a fire alarm without there being a fire, and not long after that, he was arrested again for throwing large rocks at cars from the top of a highway overpass. The Stanos were warned that a third offense would land him in a juvenile detention center. That would be juvie for all the straight-laced listeners right now. Juvie. Not ideal. At all. <laughs> His parents were desperate to set him straight, so they enrolled him in a military school. Maybe it's just me, but no surprise here, his problems did not stop. In 1967, the Stanos moved to Morristown, Pennsylvania. They hoped that the change in scenery might help curb his odd behavior. Again, nothing changed, and in fact, his attitude only got worse. Gerald began skipping school on a regular basis and continued to steal money from his family and classmates. 
Soon after graduation, Gerald moved into a motel and enrolled himself into computer school. Surprisingly, and to the delight of his parents, he graduated with flying colors, and not long after completing his program, Gerald found work at a local hospital. So here we have a young man who is clearly very intelligent, especially when it comes to his interests, which are music and computers. Womp womp, bad news. It didn't take him long to slip right back into familiar patterns. Just weeks after being hired, he was fired for stealing money from employees' purses. Gerald bounced from job to job for a while, but eventually moved back in with his parents. Eventually, Gerald moved to Florida, where he continued to bounce around from one job to the next. He was usually fired for missing days, tardiness, or theft. In 1975, Gerald tried yet again to get his life back on track. He stopped abusing alcohol and drugs and began dating a local hairstylist. Gerald fell in love with the pretty 22-year-old woman, and on June 21, 1975, they were married at a local church. Things seemed to finally be looking up for Gerald, and he was even able to find work at his father-in-law's service station on US-1. So twice now, Gerald was successful in turning away from negative influences that were consistently destroying his life. But the flip side of that coin is just how easily he found himself back to his old habits. Within months of his wedding, Gerald began drinking heavily and started to physically abuse his wife. Six months later, his wife filed for divorce and the marriage was over. Back to his parents' house we go. Well, not we, just Gerald, but I'm painting a picture here, so roll with it. Thanks. Aside from nature versus nurture, another classic question that is something that we all want to know is what makes a killer and what, like, what are the motives? Why, what are the workings behind a brain that can just do that over and over? Especially when it comes to stuff like this, where his most famous quote is, I just can't stand a bitchy chick. How did this quote come to be? Like, why? How? What was it that led you to murder some women while letting others go? As Stano described it, he would pick up a hitchhiker or a sex worker and immediately start talking to them, hoping to strike up a fling. If the woman turned him down in a nice way, respectfully, he would drop it after a while. But if she was bitchy, it would enrage him to the point of murder. If the woman laughed at him, this was like pouring gasoline on an already burning fire. Deadly. He was most brutal with the women who laughed at him. In what was to become a classic quote in the true crime world, Stano, who had just been asked by an officer why he did what he claims to have done, answers, I just can't stand a bitchy chick. You've heard about his earlier life, his middle life, some of his main problems, and you've heard about three people specifically who have claimed that he was the, well, one of them claimed, but the other two have been attributed to him being the culprit. Let's hear about the first of many, that being the first crime scene that was blamed on him and that he claimed. 
On Sunday, February 17, 1980, Detective Sergeant Paul Crow was called to a desolate area behind the Daytona Beach Airport, where two drunk college students had stumbled upon the decomposed remains of a young woman. Raise your hand if this is your personal nightmare. <laughs> My hand is raised, one of many. I've got to be honest, there's more than that, but for sure, this makes the list. Ooh, terrifying. Drink. It was Crow's job to supervise the crime scene and make sure that everything was collected proper, properly and no, there were no breaks in the chain of evidence and just no way for this to become an issue later on. A veteran of Vietnam, Crow was hardworking and dedicated. He had attended the FBI's Homicide Investigation School, and his studies in criminal psychology and profiling made him an invaluable asset to the Dehona, Dehona? Kahuna? Kahana? Mahana? Listen, I got to plow through. I don't have time to correct it. That can be blooper number five. Whatever. Daytona Beach Police Department. Nailed it. So as he's looking over this crime scene, he realizes that the condition and location of the body are pretty specific. The body was covered with branches and it was obviously posed. The victim was lying on her back with her arms positioned at her side and her hand, hand, seriously, pull it together. The victim was lying on her back with her arms positioned at her side and her head turned upward. The body was completely clothed and there was no visual indication of sexual molestation. Crow surmised that she had been dead for at least two weeks, and because of the advanced state of decomposition, it was not immediately clear what exactly had caused her death. It's not like her, it's not like there was like a gunshot wound on her chest or her head was sunken in, which even then, that's never a guarantee, but there was no clear sign as to how she was killed. Upon turning the young woman over, Crow discovered several puncture wounds to the back, suggesting that her killer had become enraged and repeatedly stabbed her. This young woman, as we know if you were paying attention earlier, was later identified as 20-year-old Mary Carol Mayer, a local college student. An autopsy revealed she suffered multiple stab wounds to the back, chest, and legs. Investigators had a brutal murderer on their hands, and they did not have many clues to follow. On the morning of March 25, 1980, a local sex worker walked into the Daytona Beach Police Station and asked to speak with an officer. Detective Jim Gadbury escorted the young woman into his office and took her statement. She said that she had been walking along Atlantic Avenue when a man in a red gremlin with tinted windows pulled up. The two quickly agreed on a price and she directed him to her motel room. Once they got there, he refused to pay up front and the two began to argue. He produced a knife and sliced her right thigh open. Afterwards, he berated her for prostituting herself before fleeing the scene. So basically, I'm going to stab you and then give you shit about what you're doing, even though I reached out to you, and then I'm going to run away. Nice. The wound was deep, and the young woman had to visit a local ER room, and she had ended up getting 27 stitches. More than anything, she was extremely angry about the attack and made it clear that she wanted that man arrested for assault. She was adamant that she would recognize him if she saw him again and described him as being of average height, slightly overweight. He wore glasses and had a mustache. She was also positive that, he, that she had just seen the man's car parked at a local apartment building. 
So, after taking this woman's statement, Gadbury drove to the apartment complex the woman mentioned in her statement. He wasn't able to find the car that she mentioned, but less than a mile away, he spotted a red 1977 Gremlin that appeared to match her exact description. He wrote down the car's license plate number and then went back to the apartment. So as soon as he gets back to police headquarters, Gadbury runs this gremlin's license plate number through the computer and discovers that the vehicle was registered to Gerald Eugene Stano, a 28-year-old man from Ormond Beach. So basically, jackpot at the first try. So as he looks over the suspect's records, he notices that the man has a long rap sheet but has never been convicted of anything he was also a prime suspect in several other assaults on local sex workers. So Gadbury prints out a copy of this suspect's mugshot and took it to the victim. As soon as she saw the photo, she knew that that's him. She even claimed, like, I'm positive this is him. This is the one who assaulted me. And she even signed an affidavit charging him with aggravated assault and battery. That's pretty bold. So, I mean, take that one way or the other. That's pretty bold. So then, Gadbury takes his findings to Crow, and the detective took an immediate interest in the case. Remember Crow from Finding Mary Carroll? He had been busy working on a psychological profile of Mary Kill Carroll's killer. That's, that's a mouthful. Mary Carroll's killer, and Stano appeared to fit. Male, white, late 30s or early 40s, lives in the Daytona Beach area, drives an ordinary car, picks up hitchhikers and sex workers, has a hot temper, hates women, cannot deal with rejection, has killed before, and will kill again. On April 1st, 1980, Gadbury and Crow brought Stano in for questioning. Before the interrogation began, Crow fed Gadbury certain questions to which he already knew the answers. He wanted to see how Stano reacted when telling the truth and when lying. Brilliant! That is so... Oh my gosh, I love this so much. I have obviously, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, I don't read this stuff beforehand and I am like, I'm standing right now, but I want to, if I was sitting down, I want to jump out of my feet, my seat, my feet. I do. I want to jump out of my feet. Obviously I can't handle this. I'm that excited. I'm so excited. I want to jump out of my feet. I'm, I'm tagging that, that I said it first. Um, so Crow soon discovers that whenever Sano was telling the truth, he would lean forward in his chair. And when he was lying, he would lean back. Ooh, ooh, I like that. That is so fascinating. Okay. After an hour of relentless questioning, Sano finally confessed to the assault on the sex worker. Then Crow took over. I'm scared for him because Crow seems like he is not messing around and he knows his shit. So Crow, sitting directly across from Stano, says, Gerald, I'm Detective Sergeant Paul Crow. I've got a problem that I think you might be able to help me with. I've got a missing girl who disappeared. I just wondered if you had seen her. Crow then produced a photo of Mary Carol Mayer and placed it on the table. Stano studied the photo for a few minutes. Yeah, I've seen her before, he says. He then went on to describe seeing her at a local hotel the previous month. When Crow asked him if he approached the girl, Stano leaned back and said he gave her a ride to Atlantic Avenue and had not seen her since. If you recall from a few sentences ago, leaning back means a lie, which I understand. This isn't a definitive science. It's not, it's not 
absolute, but it is telling, that's for sure. And this next part, I just have to take a quick break because it's pretty, pretty cool. I, uh, I need to um, not get ahead of myself and just gather my thoughts. I'll be back. Don't you worry. Want to make a difference in someone's life? There are millions of ways you can do that, but this one is extra special. It's something I've always wanted to do, and recently I did the damn thing. I wrote to a prisoner. A prisoner who is desperate for a friendship outside the walls of prison. Write a Prisoner is an amazing program that allows you to search prisoners who are requesting letters from all over the world. You can do a basic search like age, maximum sentence length, even horoscope sign. Or you can do an advanced search, raising my hand over here, that's my jam, and get real specific. I chose all, which on the site is any, meaning no stipulations, but I felt pulled the most to an inmate on death row. You can search for as long or as little as you like. I searched for five and a half hours because I knew I would know as soon as I saw the one. Female, male, it didn't matter to me. The crime didn't matter. My search paid off because, as I suspected, I knew right away when I found my pen pal. I have zero doubts that this experience will impact my pal, but it'll probably impact me the most. I'm not crying. You're crying. <sighs> Curious? Head over to www.writeaprisoner.com and find your friend or friends because there is no limits to how many pen pals you write to, but it is highly suggested that you do not write to multiple prisoners at a single location. Go. Do it. For more information, go to www.writeaprisoner, that's W-R-I-T-E-A-P-R-I-S-O-N-E-R.com and change a life. Okay, I hope you are all just as refreshed as I am from that little break we took, which for you is just maybe two minutes, three. For me, it was a little bit longer. I'll not lie that. I will not lie about that. Um, okay, so right back at this first interrogation. Crow knew Sano was lying and decided to change the subject. A brilliant move, Crow. I'm falling in love with you. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> Gerald... What are you upset about? He asks. Stano leans forward and looks directly into Crow's eyes. Today's the day you got me day, he said. Today's the day my parents adopted me. According to police reports, Stano began to talk about his childhood and his relationship with his parents. After a while, Crow brought the subject back around to Mary Carol. Carol. Stano changed his earlier statement about dropping her off on Atlantic Avenue and said that he drove her around a while and eventually stopped at a local supermarket to purchase beer. Hmm. So now this next part is actual dialogue from this interrogation. She just sat in the car while you got some beers? Yeah. Are you sure you didn't try to get in her pants, Gerald? Yeah. You wanted to get a little bit, and she didn't. Is that right? Yeah, goddammit. She didn't want to give it to you? No, she didn't. 
She could hit pretty hard, couldn't she, Gerald? You're goddamn right she could. So what did you do? Did you hit her? You got pretty mad, didn't you? Goddamn right I did. I got so goddamn mad I stabbed her as hard as I could. Tell me how you stabbed her. Well, I carried this knife under the seat, so I pulled it out and I just hit her as hard as I could. What did you do then, Gerald? I stabbed her several times in the chest. She opened the door and tried to get out, but I cut her on the leg and pulled her back in. I shut the door, she fell forward and hit her head against the dashboard and started gurgling. I stabbed her a couple more times in the back because she was messing up my car. She just went limp, so I took her. Don't tell me any more, Crow interrupted. Let's go in the car. You'll direct, I'll drive. Whew, okay. Uh, I'm going to say it again, even though I have to say it all the time, just to remind you people. I don't read this shit beforehand. So that was like super heavy for me trying to get through it, like trying to laugh, not trying to laugh when he's like, you, you're goddamn right I did. Like that was funny. But I also know that I laugh when I'm nervous. So probably that's why I was going to laugh. Um, it also feels a little bit like leading if you're looking at this from a legal perspective, like you did this next, didn't you? Like feeding answers. But if this is accurate, you can tell like that Gerald, it might be considered that in the court of law, but it, it seems like Gerald was just talking to somebody like a friend. Like, yeah, I did. I don't know. It's hard to explain how that could be considered leading, but it I got that vibe for sure. Like if I were a lawyer, I'd be like, we're going to nix this, but also I wouldn't be able to do that because it's like, look at the bigger picture, which is why I'm scratching the shit out of my head right now. Cause it's like so confusing and crazy. And I don't know how people do this. All I'm doing is on a, I'm talking about this on a podcast. That's all I'm doing. It, it, it's, to, there are people out there that this is their life daily. Cops, lawyers, everything. Prosecutors, defense attorneys. It's it's crazy because there are some cases where the prosecutor is like clearly in the right. There's some where the defense is just like, get it, like go for the underdog, like they didn't do it. And there's always the in between and it's just so, being a human is so hard, especially when you feel everything. It's just like, oh my God how do you pick sides? I wish there weren't sides. Like, let's just look at the whole picture and let's try to figure that out, you know? But that's just me. So yeah, give me a second. I'm, I'm not taking a break. There's no more breaks today. Okay. So get ready. We're going to plow through. We're going to buckle up. We're going to get through this and we're going to have fun while we do it. Damn it. So Crow offers this drive like let's go I want you to show me so then Stano leads him to the dump area where he left the body and describes how he posed it then they go back to the police station and Stano signs a confession to Mary Carroll's murder as Crow's finishing up his paperwork which is a shit ton for policemen detective Larry Lewis approaches him and asks whether Stano by chance confessed to any other crimes Crow says no he didn't Lewis says, well, maybe if you wouldn't mind questioning him about a missing persons case, which would be that of Tony Van Haddocks from earlier, who had been reported missing on February 15th, and Lewis suspected Stano might know something about it. So Crow agrees, takes a photo of the girl into the interrogation room, and places it in front of Stano. 
As soon as he looked at the photo, he leans back and said he had never met her. So now Crow obviously knows he's lying, but he didn't have enough information about the case to question him, so he decides to wait, which had to be difficult to do. So in the meantime, Stano is charged with first-degree murder of Mary Carol Mayer and is placed in the county jail. Jump forward to April 15, 1980. A resident of Holly Hill, which is near Daytona Beach, discovers a human skull in his garden. So investigators score the area and they eventually find more bones and some bits of clothing. Apparently, wild animals had discovered the corpse and scattered the remains. That happens more than you'd realize. So an autopsy later identifies the victim as Tony Van Haddix. Her cause of death was basically stab wounds to the head, like a ton of them, as you remember, 38 of them, to be precise. So once Crow finds out about this and the identity, he brings Stano back to the interrogation room and begins questioning him. Stano initially, like at first he denies it, but as each hour passes, he begins to break. In the end, he confesses and signs a confession to the murder of Tony Van Haddix. Crow begins to wonder how many more women Stano might have murdered, and so he does a deep dive through all of the unsolved cases dating back to 1975. There was 16-year-old Linda Hamilton, an out-of-town visitor, who was found dead on July 22, 1975, near an old Indian burial ground. That's That alone is terrifying. Drink. The Massachusetts native was last seen walking down Atlantic Avenue, which, as we know, Atlantic Avenue is one of his favorite cruise spots. Then, in January of 1976, the body of 24-year-old Nancy Hurd was found near Below Creek Road, just north of Ormond Beach. Her body was also posed and also covered with tree branches. She was last seen hitchhiking on what avenue? Just take a guess. That's right, Atlantic Avenue. Ramona Neal, a beautiful 18-year-old woman from Georgia, was found in Tomoka State Park in May of 1976. Her body had also been concealed with branches. Many serial killers are known to roam hundreds of miles just to find a victim, so Crow begins to wonder just how many counties Stano might have traveled through in search of his prey. Clearly, we've got all these women right here, but who else is out there? After going through all of the local files, he starts to look into nearby counties. So he's basically targeting in the middle and like pulsating outwards. Think of like, actually, perfect sign is the target sign. Start in the middle and you go out, out, out. It's just like that. Um, let's see. So he finds that in Bradford, which is about 100 miles west of Daytona, the body of a young woman was discovered in a swampy area. She was last seen in Daytona Beach near Atlantic Avenue. The crime scene was pretty similar to the others, including the branches that he uses to cover the body. And in the small town of Titusville, which was 50 miles south of Brevard County, another young woman was discovered. She was last seen hitchhiking along Atlantic Avenue in Daytona Beach. She also was found post and covered in brush. Is anybody sensing a theme? Good for you. Pat yourself on the back. In looking through his past, Stano's past, Crow learned that Stano had lived in 
couple different parts of Florida since the early 70s, and then for a little bit in New Jersey. So Crow contacts the police department in Stewart, Florida, and finds out that they had several unsolved murders of young women in that area during the mid-70s, which is where he was living at the time. So then he contacts officials in New Jersey and finds out they have at least two similar murders that took place in the early 70s. All of these victims were young women, posed, and covered with tree branches. Detective Crow knew it was not going to be easy getting Sano to admit to another murder, let alone a dozen or more. Having these confessions about these deaths, Stano starts to kind of panic and thinks the walls are closing in on him, which they kind of are. And basically, it's like a wishy-washy. He probably digs his heels in and the prosecutors and the, the investigators are just like, okay, listen, we have these three at least. So if you agree to plead guilty to the murders of Mary Carroll... Mayor Tony Van Haddix and Nancy Hurd, all those confessions about any other case, it doesn't matter. You're going to receive three consecutive life sentences, each carrying a mandatory minimum of 25 years behind bars. So he agrees. And then on December, not December, <laughs> I got a little excited there. On September 2nd of 1981, Judge S. James Foxman accepts this plea bargain and imposed the three life sentences. Mr. Stano, says Judge Foxman, the information before me, these three cases, lead me to believe that the death sentence may very well have been appropriate in any of those three cases, perhaps all of them. I reluctantly agreed not to sentence you to death to eliminate the possibility of the death penalty. So he's, Gerald is taken to the county jail and later that week is transported to the Florida State Prison. So conjecture like word on the street gossip is he likes to brag about all of his crimes he loves the publicity can't can't even get enough of it when he gets to state prison it seems that no one seems to care about him so this makes him pretty mad and he decides to reach out to crow and finish clearing the books even if it means that he could end up on death row so Crow obviously is jumping for joy and he gets super excited about it, which who wouldn't? That's like a dream for everyone working in that field. And it does not happen often, which it just kind of for me is like a red flag. Like that doesn't mean it's true. It means like he feels like he's like screwed already and he doesn't care anymore. And he got the limelight and that felt so good to him. And somebody who just wants to feel good like that of course they're going to do it. So it, this is where it's just like later on, there's so many debates and so much evidence. Like maybe he didn't, maybe he like, there are a lot of things pointing to him being needy of attention and making stuff up and just admitting to, yes, he committed some crimes. There's no doubt about that, but all of them, it, it gets shady later on. You should, you should research that because I unfortunately can't cover it and I don't want to do another week of a part two because that was just like a huge shadow on me. I can't do it this soon after doing one last week. So he inter is interviewed with by Crow and he confesses to the murder of 17-year-old Kathy Lee Scharf in Port Orange, Florida, who her remains decomposed as well, were discovered on January 19th, 1974. That's today, all those years ago. 
in a ditch near Titusville, Florida. Also, 24-year-old Susan Bickress of Daytona Beach, Florida, whose body was found floating in Spruce Spring Creek in December of 1975, and 23-year-old Mary Muldoon of Ormond Beach, Florida, whose body was discovered in a ditch in November of 1977. As Stano is recalling each murder, Crow was blown away at just how many crimes had happened, again, allegedly. How could such a young man have committed so many murders in such a short amount of time? It was mind-boggling not only to the detective, but to anyone else who heard about it. And he actually admits that he would spend the rest of his career trying to understand it. That, to me, says a lot, to be honest. So then he also continues to confess to the murders of 19-year-old Janine Ligatino and 17-year-old Anne Arsenault whose bodies were discovered in 73 near Gainesville, Florida. 17-year-old Barbara Ann Bauer, whose body was found in 1974 near Stark, Florida, and a yet-identified woman who was found in Altamont Springs, Florida in 74. In addition, there was 34-year-old Bonnie Hughes, 18-year-old Diana Valick, 21-year-old Emily Branch, 17-year-old Christina Goodson, 23-year-old Phoebe Winston, 18-year-old Joan Foster, and 12-year-old Susan Bazil. As their meeting was about to end, wrapping it up, Stano just suddenly remembers two others, 35-year-old Sandra DuBose, whose body was discovered on a deserted road near Daytona Beach in 78, and 17-year-old Dorothy Williams, whose body was discovered in a drainage, drainage ditch near Atlantic Avenue in 79. Stano is like, I promise that's it. That's it, he's telling Crow. There are no other skeletons in the closet. I've confessed it all. That's it. Done. Game over. That's all I can tell you. On June 8th, 1983, Stano enters guilty pleas in the deaths of Susan Bickrist and Mary Muldoon. He waives his right to a hearing and Judge Foxman sentences him. Sentence him. <laughs> okay. He sentences him to death. I do speak English, I promise. Stano shows no emotion as the sentence is read and is quickly escorted back to Florida State Prison. In September of 83, he's convicted of Kathy Lee Sharp's murder. The state introduces Stano's taped confession in which he admits to picking up Sharp while she was hitchhiking and then murdering her. The jury convicted Stano of first-degree murder and recommended death. The trial court found four aggravators prior conviction of a violent felony, the murder was committed during a kidnapping, the murder was heinous, atrocious, or cruel, and the murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. The trial court sentenced Stano to death, and two years later, his conviction and sentence were affirmed on appeal. So during the next three years, he goes on to confess to more murders. It's unknown how many he actually committed, and a lot of people do begin to wonder if he was just confessing to ones he had heard about through the grapevine. Investigators continue to collect names, but no further charges are ever filed. On May 22nd of 1986, the governor of Florida signs Stano's first death warrant. His execution is scheduled for July 2nd of 1986. According to trial documents provided by the Florida State University College of Law, Stano filed his first motion for post-conviction relief on July 1st of 1986, the day before his scheduled execution. 
the trial court granted a stay of execution until 10 a.m. July 2, 1986, to allow Stano the opportunity to appeal the ruling. The following day, Stano is granted a temporary stay of execution. So his appeals are later denied on, well, no, so they're later denied. And then on June 4th, 1987, we're talking about the summer of the next year, the governor signed his second death warrant. Execution was sent set for August 26th, 1987. He files again for a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court of Florida on August 22nd, 1987. I was just a couple weeks old at that time. That's just crazy. The district court concluded that Stano's claims of ineffective assistance of counsel required an evidentiary hearing and granted him a temporary stay of execution. So again, he loses his appeal and the governor signs his third death warrant. This execution was scheduled for April 29, 1997. On March 18, 1997, Stano files a notice of conflict in respect to his then counsel and his execution date was changed to May 30th of 1997. But as luck would have it, the malfunction in the electric chair during the execution of Pedro Medea caused the court to stay Stano's execution pending resolution of the electric chair issues. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Don't you worry. So then, on October 20th, 1997, the court declares that the problems with the electric chair had been addressed and that it was not cruel or unusual punishment, which is, I can, this is just a whole other, not even episode, this is a whole other podcast. Stano's stay was dissolved and the governor reset his execution for March 23rd, 1998. Just keep it moving. After a few more motions fail, Stano runs out of chances. On the morning of March 23, 1998, Gerald Eugene Stano sat quietly in his cell at Florida State Prison waiting to be taken to the electric chair. It was not the first time he had sat waiting for this date with destiny. His execution, as we've talked about, has been pushed back several times over the past years, and on one occasion, he was granted a stay within three hours of his scheduled appointment with death. As Stano pondered his fate, a large crowd gathered outside the prison. His death, his specifically, was to be the first execution since the electric chair, nicknamed Old Sparky, had malfunctioned during the execution of Pedro Medea, what we just talked about, when a 12-inch flame leaped from the killer's head. During a later interview with the socialist worker, Bedina's lawyer described the brutal death. It was a burning alive, literally, he said. This was the second similar malfunction by the chair within seven years. Medina's execution set off a series of appeals, extensive mechanical testing, and a slim 4-3 vote by the Florida Supreme Court upholding the electric chair as the state's method of execution. So, back to this day. Of all the people that were beginning to arrive at the prison, there was Raymond Neal, who is the 41-year-old brother of one of Sano's victims. 
During a brief interview with freelance journalist Terry Ecker, Neal said he had waited many years to see Stano pay for his crimes. Stano had killed Neal's sister Ramona in 1976. Her decomposed body was discovered about four months later. Direct quote, I hope he says he's sorry, said Neil, but I don't really care. It's time. I want to look at Stano, look at his face when they strap him in. I want the bad dreams to stop. As soon as he's put to death, the better we will all rest. Don't worry, we'll come back to him again later on. So everyone's arriving. Stano ordered his last meal, a Delmonico steak, bacon bits, baked potato with sour cream, some French bread with butter, and a tossed salad topped with blue cheese dressing. For dessert, he requested a half gallon of mint chocolate chip ice cream and two liters of Dr. Pepper. Not going to lie, that sounds, all of that sounds amazing. As he ate his final feast, it's kind of hard to imagine what's going through his mind. Was he concerned that, like, is this it? Is the governor going to call? Or is he not going to call? Is it going to be stayed? Is it not? Was he completely oblivious of all of it and confident in the luck he had all those times before? We'll never know. We will never know because we're not, we weren't there. And I feel like when you're put in that position time and time again, I don't think you'd ever get used to it. But I also think that after so many times, your your feelings at that moment have to change and shift a little bit. But Again, I don't know because I've not been in anything remotely close to a position like that. Gerald Stano said nothing to the guards as they escorted him down the path to the death chamber. As the guards strapped him in the chair, Raymond Neal waited anxiously behind the witness viewing window approximately three feet away from the man who murdered his sister. So remember him from earlier? Same guy. I said, die, you monster, yes, Neil later told reporters from the Associated Press. The power slammed into him and he jerked as much as he could and that was it. I saw the life going out of his hands. I felt like a ton of bricks had been lifted off my back. Afterward, me and my brother smoked cigars to celebrate. I can't express this feeling, he said. I felt so much better. I'm so glad Florida has the guts to keep the electric chair. At least there was a split second of pain. With lethal injection, you just go to sleep. In the end, Gerald Stano had confessed to the murders of 41 women. While many of his confessions never made it to court and several of the victims have yet to be identified, most police officials consider the cases closed. Let's just go back to Neil. I can absolutely imagine and not understand, imagine the pain but to me, how is anything he is saying better than what's happened? I just feel like an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, for one. Yeah, that's a quote of Gandhi. Because he's getting, in quotes, justice. But how is that justice? Somebody else is dying and he's getting relief from it. Just like probably what happened when Stanel killed who he killed. Not saying it's okay. But I don't think it's okay okay to get relief even if it's cloaked with the term justice I don't know I do know actually I, I just I can't get into it I can't I just I don't see how that makes him any better than Stano to be honest and you know what 
Probably going to have some haters, probably going to get some feedback on that that is not very nice, but I can't, I can't not say it. That makes him no better, in my opinion. Anyways, that was the story of Gerald Eugene Stano, but barely, because there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of evidence that shows that he basically was just killed for no reason because Okay, it's hard to say that because he did commit some crimes. Yes, like what was agreed on in the beginning, all that jail time without a death sentence. And then he just kept going and going and going, describing all these crimes and confessing to them. But there's been evidence that he couldn't have possibly committed them and that he was just one of those that needed the attention. And damn, if that isn't scary that to kill him, like I'm getting ahead of myself, that's something that... I'm never going to be able to fully explain, especially at the end of a long ass episode and a long ass day. So I'm going to end it here. Just look it up for yourself. There is a lot of evidence, not just people talking. There's evidence. One of the snitches, one of the, the, one of the reasons he was convicted for the death penalty has come forward after being taped lying and admitting to lying in a recorded conversation that he was unaware of. So, I mean, regardless, it's horrible. But again, I just have to ask, how does that make anyone better to require that somebody else die? I get it. I get the anger and I get the need and want for justice and the need and want like she hit me I'm gonna hit her back I get that it's like a very childish immature it's ego it's straight up ego a hundred percent but if you get past that how does that makes you know better makes me think of the people when I watched the documentary um about 10 buddy before the movie with Zac Efron who kicked ass and nailed it. Well, we can't even talk about that right now, but those people like cheering and drinking beer and selling shirt and wearing shirts and excited. I was sick to my stomach. I was sick to my stomach hearing and learning about his crimes. I was equally as sick to my stomach, if not more so watching these people celebrate something that is so in like, I don't understand that makes you literally the same level, if not worse than because you're not a sociopath, not an excuse. I'm just saying, God, it's so hard to explain, but it's just so fucked up. Anyway, I got to go and shower now and go to bed. I'm exhausted, but this was so worth it. I hope I made you think. I hope I brought forward everything I wanted to as soon as I found out about this man and read about him. And I was I was like hook, line, sinker. I was done day one. And I just hope I did enough to where you were at least not entertained, but like, hmm, makes you think a little bit. Anyways, be back at it next week. As always, have a good night. Mwah. Peace out. Should've seen the bad
According to Robert Ressler, an FBI profiler and author of several, several books, not several, several, <laughs> several. Okay, you gotta have fun when you can, you know what I mean? So, blah, 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 fuck. God damn it. Gerald fell in love with the pretty two-to-two-year, two-to-two-year, remix, pretty, pretty, 22-year-old. It was Crow's job to supervise the crime scene and make sure that everything happened properly. Properly? Really? It's extra because properly isn't good enough. You need you need that shit done properly. It needed to be collected properly. That's for sure. Writer of Blind Flirt, Blind Flurry, Jesus. Blind Fury. You know what? Fuck it. That part doesn't matter. Earth to Brit can be found wherever you go to get your next podcast fix. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is Earth to Brit Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Earth to Brit Pod. Emails can be sent to earth to Brit.podcast at gmail.com. The podcast website is www.anchor.fm slash earth to Brit. Remember, Brit is spelled with two T's. B-R-I-T-T. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This out. This is a Yellow Wave production.